Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Vittoria, and today I'm going to tell you all about the Swan King, Fairy Tale King, and Bavarian queer mystery, Ludwig II. Well, 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 where do I even begin with this man? Mercy me. I, you know, I must confess, I knew little to nothing about Ludwig prior to my research. And I kind of just stumbled upon this topic while I was researching um, things to discuss this month. And I didn't really want to discuss the like the history of Christmas because um, Christmas is not really my jam. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I love winter and I love decorating for the holidays. I love holiday holiday lights and I definitely love the mass amounts of sweets we all consume. It's it's my favorite. Um, but I really dislike the capitalist angle of this holiday. You know, we rush and we rush and we rush and we busy ourselves with everything. And I really don't think that's how we're supposed to live. And, you know, winter, especially in winter, of course, like winter is the time for reflection and slowing down and rebirth. And how can one do that while simultaneously going into debt? And also it's a pandemic. So Maybe we do really just focus on slowing down and rebirth and staying home. While I was scrolling on my phone, both in an attempt to find ideas and to distract myself, I kept seeing tagged photos of Neuschwanstein Castle, Ludwig's infamous Bavarian home. I remember seeing images of this castle back in high school German class, and my teacher, Frau Gochi, told us about the grueling hike to the castle and that the king who had made it was rumored to be mad. I always admired the castle and I thought it was just beautiful from the first moment that I saw it. The castle remained a bucket list item for some time till I started to become, you know, a bit more fascinated with other places to see and with limited funds, a trip to Bavaria was just going to have to wait. But I won't get into too much detail about the castle just yet. I gathered so much information about this man and his life that this is my first topic that will be split into two episodes. So this episode is going to focus on Ludwig as a man and a monarch, as well as give insight into his family and what followed the country at the end of his reign. And the second episode, which will be released following this recording, will be about Ludwig's many castles and his impact on the world. And just a little heads up uh, before I begin. So I call this one very unsavory key player in this story some pretty bad words. Uh, so I recommend maybe not listening to this episode if you have children around or if you just don't like swearing. But I got to tell you, everything bad that I say about this person is well-deserved and they only deserve my wrath. With all that said, let's start the show. Once upon a time, in the kingdom of Bavaria, lived the royal house of Wittelsbach, which had reigned over the land for seven hundred years. In the late warm month of August, under the Virgo sun, in the year 1845, a prince by the name of Ludwig was born to Maximilian II and Marie of Prussia. Maximilian and Marie had one more child after Ludwig, another prince named Otto, who came into the world two months earlier than anticipated, and the kingdom feared for his life. 
With the near loss of Prince Otto, he was favored by both parents before Ludwig. Otto and Ludwig were mostly opposite in their interests and behavior. Prince Otto was sociable and fascinated by all things military. Ludwig loved art and would marvel at flowers in the palace gardens. Their mother Marie claimed many times that she never understood Ludwig's odd behavior. She had chosen to dress her children in the national colors of Bavaria. Prince Otto would wear red and Ludwig in blue. Prince Ludwig was not allowed to behave like a child, and most of his toys were taken from him at an early age. He was not even allowed to keep his beloved pet turtle. Ludwig was allowed to keep his building blocks, though, which would serve as inspiration. Ludwig was subjected to a strict schedule of tutoring and exercise for 12 hours a day and for six days a week. He would commonly suffer from nervous exhaustion because... Of course he would, he's a child, and all of that sounds terrible. And it was around this time, in his early youth, that he began to show signs of withdrawing into a world of fantasy. Ludwig was also denied a diet of flavorful foods. Even fruits were restricted. One of Ludwig's first uh, nursemaids was a woman by the name of Lysi, and she would sneak the young prince sweet meats that she would purchase herself. And I believe from this moment, Ludwig associated sweets with kindness, which caused him to become addicted to sugary treats for his uh, entire reign. I'm not too sure what the significance of putting Ludwig on a bland diet was, uh, but it does remind me of the story of the man who invented Kellogg's, uh, Kellogg's cereal, who was trying to create a bland-ass breakfast to curb thoughts of masturbation. Like, seriously, y'all, he was super religious and believed meat and flavor uh, made folks devilish. And um, there have been, you know, religious associations associations with food throughout the ages, so perhaps Maximilian was attempting to dull temptation by not allowing salt on the prince's potatoes. Who knows? Ludwig was also given a French governess who had indulged him in tales of the French monarchy prior to the revolution. She filled his head with stories of the court of Louis XIV, also known as the Sun King. His French governess, whose name I could not find, would refer to Ludwig as le grand monarch and fill his head with ideas of absolute monarchism, in which the crown would hold power over everyone. Soon, Ludwig would begin to declare himself l'état de moi, meaning I am the state. His governess would also tell him the grand prince is always the first. This sense of Ludwig's own importance would result in the prince behaving like an aggressive brat. When Ludwig was 12 years old, he was attending a play in the park with his brother Otto, and without provocation, Ludwig threw Otto to the ground and planted a knee firmly on the latter's chest then stuffed his handkerchief into his mouth and shouted, You are my subject. You must obey me. Sometime I shall be your king. A courtier saw this incident and ran over to rescue Otto, who had almost suffocated. When the news made its way back to their father, um, the king, he beat Ludwig, and both brothers were required to have a chaperone from them with them henceforth. In another sweet 
cherished memory from their childhood that took place in the winter at Munich. Both children were playing in the snow, and Otto was rolling a mighty large snowball, in which he made the mistake of showing Ludwig and saying, See, Ludwig, I have a snowball that is bigger than your head. Ludwig then took the snowball, and Otto began to cry. When their chaperone asked what happened, Otto snitched on the princely brat, and Ludwig declared, Have I no right to take the snowball? What am I a crown prince for? King Maximilian's advisers would encourage him to show interest in his eldest child, to lead by example for the future king of Bavaria. His father, though, dismissed the thought and responded as so, But what am I to say to him? After all, my son takes no interest in what other people tell him. In later years, when Ludwig had neared the end of his reign, he would refer to his mother as my predecessor's consort. When Ludwig was a teenager, he fell in love with his aide-de-camp, Prince Paul, who was a member of the wealthy Bavarian Thern und Taxis family. They would ride horses together and read poetry aloud to one another. Paul and Ludwig shared a mutual love for the composer Richard Wagner, and Paul would sing to Ludwig, dressed as Lohengrin, in silver shining armor. Paul at one point had a diary, but unfortunately it was possibly destroyed during the First World War. The following letter was sent by Paul to Ludwig from his apartment in Munich on the 5th of May, 1866. Dear and beloved Ludwig, I am just finishing my diary with the thought of the beautiful hours which we spent together that evening a week ago, which made me the happiest man on earth. Oh, Ludwig, Ludwig, I am consecrated to you. I couldn't stand the people around me. I sat still, and in my thought I was with you. How my heart beats when at the residence I see a light in your window. So I found some conflicting reports about what happened with Prince Paul and Ludwig. There may have been people in Ludwig's circle that spread some nasty rumors about how Paul behaved when he was away from Ludwig's court, and this upset Ludwig. And, you know, Ludwig, like so many other indulged monarchs, had a tendency to fly off the handle. So it could have been really anything. Anything could have happened. Um, either way, Paul and Ludwig never saw each other again, and Paul was later shunned by his family when he married a, a Jewish opera singer by the name of Elise Krutze. Ludwig became king in his 19th year in um, 1864 after his father Maximilian died from a three-day illness. He was unprepared, but his youth and his good looks made him instantly well-received. By all accounts, Ludwig was a very good-looking young man. He stood tall at six foot four and had large piercing blue eyes that German writer Paul Heiss described as being dreamy. His hair was dark brown and he had it curled daily, insisting, if I didn't have my hair curled every day, I could not enjoy my food. Man, I can relate. Hair is everything. Ludwig had no interest in matters of war or politics. He wanted his reign to be devoted to the arts, and within the first month as regent, Ludwig sent his private secretary to find composer Richard Wagner and bring him to Munich. 
Ludwig had begged his father to let him attend a Wagner performance in his youth, but was denied because he believed Wagner was a bad influence and that Ludwig's thoughts needed to be on leading and not on music. Well, when Ludwig was 15, he managed to sneak away to see his first Wagner performance of Lohengrin, in which the young prince wept so hard and loudly that people believed the prince was having a seizure. Ludwig gave his secretary a letter he had written to Wagner with a ruby ring and signed photographs of himself included. Okay, watch out because I'm about to give a uh, vulgar. So Richard Wagner was on the run from creditors because he had lived far above his means and was also just a political exile. So Richard Wagner was a vile, gross dickhead who was an anti-Semite and he had published hostile writings on Jewish people, including a piece uh, called Jewishness in Music, which correspond um, to some of the existing trends of thought in Germany during the 19th century. Which, let's talk about trends for a minute, because we all know these trends were existing in the 19th century, and we know what followed in the 20th century. So, this guy's a prick. Wagner argued that Jewish composers would never be able to capture a true German spirit, and any work they published was shallow at best. And it did not stop at anti-Semitism, as Richard Wagner also disliked the idea of interracial relationships and felt Western society was doomed because of, and I quote, the mixing between superior and inferior races. Indeed, he was a very repulsive human whose legacy would um, go on to include becoming a posthumous icon for the Nazi party. Upon learning about disgusting Wagner, I was worried that I'd find about uh, I was worried what I'd find about Ludwig and further ties to anti-Semitism. And in my research, I did not find Ludwig uh, saying anything, but that does not mean he is innocent of anti-Semitic or uh, racist thought. He was, after all, a rich white person in Europe and a royal person at that. Um, I'm just saying I did not find any direct quote of him saying anything. Not that he was innocent. I did find a couple of stories, though, that make me kind of wonder. In the opera Parsifal, uh, Ludwig had instructed Wagner to perform it, but using a Jewish conductor of his choosing by the name of a man by the name of Hermann Levi, who was the son of a rabbi. When Wagner learned about this, he was so furious and he refused to do it unless Levi had agreed to a baptism in which Ludwig responded to Wagner with a letter stating Nothing is more repugnant, nothing less edifying than such squabbles. People, after all, are brothers, in spite of all denominational differences. So, I understand what Ludwig is trying to say in this letter, that Wagner just needs to shut the fuck up and do what he was paid to do and stop being an asshole about it. But still, like, excusing the worst in people and enabling them is trash. Um, the opera did carry on with Herman as the conductor. Later in life, Ludwig would be criticized for his exorbitant spending habits. One of his biggest critics were the um, Jewish community, who said the monarch spent way beyond his means and needed to consider the country. He was said to have been shocked at the criticism and stated, 
Do they not know that I am the only prince who, from the beginning of the anti-Semitic movement, has taken strong measures to counteract it? Sir, I'm sorry, but what did you do exactly to counteract it? How did you use your political influence and position as a monarch to stop it? Because I found nothing. Um, you didn't even dump your trash friend who declared his anti-Semitism to you. Instead, you funded his career and paid off his debt. So Wagner, Wagner would have nothing without Ludwig's aid. So sure, perhaps Ludwig was not as bold as most, of, as most people around him, but he supported a dumpster fire of a man whose thoughts and words would go on to inspire some very, very evil people. I guess I'm, I'm like touching on this topic because I've heard a lot of people just refer to Ludwig as being an innocent and I don't think he was entirely innocent of his actions or doings and maybe we just look at this from multiple angles. Initial rumors began to spread about the court um, or about court that Richard Wagner and Ludwig may have been lovers. In all of Ludwig's letters to Wagner, he states how the composer spoke to his heart as no one had ever done before, and Wagner made many remarks regarding Ludwig's beauty. However, when confronted with these inquiries regarding the nature of these letters, Wagner responded with, Oh, those don't sound very good, but it was not I who set the tone. Wagner had been wildly hedonistic once he had returned back to Munich, and the government threatened to banish him yet again, whether Ludwig had approved or not. At the time, the monarchy was allowed to exist, but did not have absolute power, much to Ludwig's dismay. The government could function without the monarch, but the monarch could not function without the government. Ludwig threatened to abdicate his throne if Wagner was exiled, but Wagner and the king's closest companions convinced him to hold on to his crown. Within a year of Ludwig's reign, a seven-week war, also referred to as the Austro-Prussian War, popped off. Now forgive me, but I'm not too familiar with wars, nor am I super familiar with the history of Germany at this time, um, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I do know. Um, so the Austro-Prussian War was a war fought in 1866 between the Austrian Empire and the Kingdom of Prussia with each also being aided by various allies within the German Confederation. See, at this time, or at the time of Ludwig's reign, uh, the country we now know as Germany was 39 independent states that formed the German Confederation. The Kingdom of Bavaria was the largest of the independent states. And this war began as a rivalry between Austria and Prussia, and this war resulted in Prussian dominance over the German states. It should be stated that Ludwig did not want this war, and neither did the Bavarian people. Now, they call this the Seven Weeks War, but really the outcome of that seven weeks had multiple effects that carried out over the next few years. But, I mean, I guess that could be said of all wars. Um, there was a Franco-Prussian War that broke out in 1870, in which Bavaria was required to fight alongside Prussia, and after the Prussia... Prussian victory over France, General Otto von Bismarck moved to complete uh, the unification of Germany. In December of 1870, Otto von Bismarck introduced the Kaiserbrief, a letter endorsing the creation of the German Empire with King Wilhelm I of Prussia as its emperor. 
Ludwig regretted the loss of Bavaria's independence and refused to attend Wilhelm's coronation, in which he was required to attend. Instead, he sent his brother and uncle in his absence. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Ludwig's brother Otto. So Ludwig was still allowed to keep his title as King of Bavaria, and he was also known to have visited with soldiers and paid respects to lost members of his army. He was deeply disturbed by what he saw and mourned the loss of life. His brother, Prince Otto, suffered for years after the war from the effects of PTSD and was locked away. The House of Wittelsbach had an unfortunate history of mental illness. Within the last 100 years uh, from Ludwig's reign, there had been 20 cases of mental illness within the family. Some argue that this was a result of inbreeding. It is true that the rich and royal would inbreed often and preserve the bloodline, or as I also like to put it, keep people, keep outside people from their wealth and their secrets. Inbreeding can cause many issues. However, I think it's a little bit of a lazy response to say that inbreeding is the sole cause of mental distress within royal families. Not to say that the act of inbreeding is without trauma. In the case of royalty, it would often be a young girl, barely a teenager, who would be forced to marry a random uncle considerably older than them. So there was a very predatory element to inbreeding, but to say that it was uh, the sole cause of mental illness to me feels insufficient. The environment and isolation alone of monarchy and the self-abandonment they most all face can result in numerous traumas. I think what is likely the cause of mental illness in most of these homes is inherited violence. With Prince Otto's, with Prince Otto's case, he went from being sociable and friendly to pale and wretched. He would also shiver as if he were freezing and laugh out loud when left alone. Historians would say that Prince Otto suffered from a mental illness or possibly had syphilis as he had exhibited physical symptoms when he got older. By most accounts, his mind did not begin to suffer until after the war. Ludwig was devastated by his brother's mental decline as he had hoped Otto would marry and produce offspring that Ludwig could name as his heir. Otto had normal lucid days and then days where he was inconsolable. He was placed under medical supervision and reports about his condition were sent by spies working for the Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Doctors reported that Otto was mentally ill in January 1872. His attending physician was Dr. Bernard von Guden, who later diagnosed Otto's brother Ludwig as mentally ill without bothering to examine him and without asking him a single question which raises questions about his competence and his motives. Ludwig maintained a close friendship with his cousin, Empress Elizabeth of Austria, whose life would also read like a royal nightmare of mental distress. To briefly summarize, Empress Elizabeth had a cruel mother-in-law who took Elizabeth's children from her the second they were born, and Elizabeth suffered from anorexia and bulimia her entire life. When she did eat, she was said to have eaten very little or only ingested milk and protein broths. Elizabeth became obsessed with appearing tiny and would resort to tight lacing, which is exactly as it sounds, where one would wear a corset, which um, was popular at the time, but they'd really just make it as tight as humanly possible, like just reducing the waist 
significantly. And unlike the popular spit, uh, split busk type of corset, um, Elizabeth resorted to wearing ones made of leather, which took uh, up to half an hour to lace up. Elizabeth had developed a strong case of fat phobia, in which she passed down the same disordered body image to her daughter, who's recorded as shrieking at the sight of Queen Victoria of England. Later in her life, um, her son had made a murder-suicide pact with his girlfriend, and this caused Elizabeth to have a catastrophic mental breakdown, in which she threatened suicide daily. She could no longer handle court life and had to literally run away and travel in disguise on voyages all over the world. Elizabeth insisted on being tied to the deck of a ship during storms so that she could be battered by wind and waves as her soul crashed and toiled inside of her. When asked why she did this, she responded with, I want to travel the world until I am drowned and forgotten. So Elizabeth was, as I stated before, she was Ludwig's cousin and she was his one of his closest friends, but she was also a Wittelsbach. So I just gave you two examples of Wittelsbach uh, family members who had, you know, s suffered severe uh, mental distress and trauma. And it just kind of kept coming. And I, you know, I barely have grazed the surface of Wittelsbach history. So who knows what else is waiting to be found. Ludwig never married, nor did he have any known lady mistresses. He was for a brief time engaged to his cousin, or one of his cousins, uh, Duchess Sophie Charlotte. They both shared a love of the wretched Wagner, and at Ludwig's request, they would often sit in on Wagner's rehearsals. They announced their engagement to the court, and everyone was super excited that the handsome king was finally settling down and would produce an heir. But Ludwig, being very gay, kept pushing off the wedding date and grew more peculiar in his behavior. Eventually, the engagement was broken off when Ludwig wrote to Sophie that he would not be a good husband, as they did not share a love that is necessary for a matrimonial union, but he held the deepest feelings of friendship for her. He did not sign his name, nor mention her by her name, more so just used the names of the characters from Wagner's Lohengrin, um, Elsa and Heinrich. Ludwig kept close relationships with male attendants, but he struggled greatly suppressing his homosexual desires. Ludwig was a devout Catholic and insisted on remaining true to the teachings of the church. Homosexuality has not been or had not been punishable in Bavaria since 1813. However, after the unification of Germany in 1871, it criminalized homosexual acts between males under Prussian hege hegemony. In a now socially conservative Bavaria, the scandal of a homosexual monarch would have been intolerable. Ludwig kept a diary all of his life, and some thankfully were saved, but ones following 1869 were destroyed in World War II. Ludwig had fallen in love with his master of the horse, Richard Hornick, and judging by their letters, it looks like the feeling was mutual. Richard wrote to Ludwig on October 29, 1871, the following. The morning is crystal clear today, compared to the drizzle of rain that was falling yesterday during both day and night. 
I welcome the sight of green fields covered in morning dew and the warm sun that enters through my window. The other servants have run off to their chores, but I lingered behind just so I could write to you, just for a few minutes. The rooms are empty without you, and I cannot bring myself to speak, because my lips thirst for you. When will we be able to be together again? I find myself missing the quiet evenings we used to share together and your uneasy temper. I pray that as I close this letter and send it away, you are done with your business and are contemplating your return. I must leave you now, for already they knock on my door, and I must tend to the horses. Waiting, Richard. The following is a letter, a response from King Ludwig to Richard, dated October 31st, 1871. My dearest friend, how I smiled when I received your letter, and how my heart felt peace as if I was in a fresh field. At first, I must admit, I stood holding the letter, not wishing to open it nor read it. I felt ashamed. I guess at having such a small piece of you, and such a secret, neatly folded little paper. Oh, but the sweet smell of roses and the softness of your paper made my thought disappear, and I lay back on my bed, enjoying your letter, as if I were eating delicious berries. I am terribly sorry it has been such foul weather. It seems we have nothing but sunshine, and the roads to Berlin are so stuffy with heat. I often pray for rain, which you seem to be hugging all to yourself. But I shan't be mad, because you relieved me, my friend, and kept me from going insane with your small letter. I have hidden it inside the wooden drawer set in my room beneath the Bible, where no one will look. It seems we are to travel westward tomorrow to meet with a certain Frau Vogel, and it appears we are to spend two entire nights in her manner, much against my will, since I hardly know the woman. Still, it appears time presses me even now, and that it will be long until we meet again, dearest. I shall run my fingers over your signature as if it were your lips. Until then, L. Ludwig was also known to have courted a 23-year-old Hungarian actor by the name of Josef Kantz, and I'm pretty sure it's Josef, not Joseph. So let's go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and stick with Josef. So Josef was said to have captivated Ludwig with his passionate acting capabilities and the resonating tone in which he recited his lines. Upon his performance in Victor Hugo's Marianne de Lorme, Ludwig sent him a sapphire ring and a letter of praise. Wishing to know him personally, Ludwig summoned him to Linderhof Palace, where he stayed for a whole two weeks. When Josef left the palace before he stepped on the stagecoach to take him away, Ludwig took jewels from his own coat and placed them in Josef's hand. Josef had invited the monarch to Spain with him for a performance, but Ludwig claimed he had political matters to attend to. The friendship between the prince and the actor was much talked about and very criticized, and Ludwig is known as saying, It depresses me greatly when I see that my innocent fancies are trumpeted out before the whole world and are hatefully criticized. Okay, now we're going to talk a bit about Ludwig's um, very, very bad money habits. When Ludwig and Otto were children, they were allowed pocket money to the amount of about a shilling a week, which is hardly a princely budget. 
Otto had heard that there was money value for nice teeth, and he took himself to one of the dentists in Munich and offered him one of his best molars. The dentist knew who he was and denied the offer, but word got back to their father, Maximilian, and despite being the favorite, Otto got beat. On his 18th birthday, Ludwig for the first time received a purse of money from his father. He had never before had anything in his pocket but a few coppers. He imagined that he had suddenly become a wealthy man, and hastened off to buy and present to his mother a locket, which he had admired in the jeweler's shop. Ludwig did not ask what the price was, and the jeweler said he would build the palace, and then Ludwig was like, no need, I have my own money now. I find Ludwig to be an interesting case. He was pushed to his limits as a child and was spoiled in a verbal sense by his governesses. I think being kept on such a tight budget was meant to teach him not to spend beyond his means, but he did the exact opposite. This is my personal assessment of this. I feel like Ludwig being denied parental love and the freedom of loving the person of his choosing would result in his need for consumption. He associated the early simple treats he would receive as being signs of love and would equate gift-giving and material excess with affection. Let's fast forward to the future a bit. So even though Ludwig funded his projects with money he had inherited, his want of money was known far outside the limits of the kingdom. His debts had reached uh, the sum of 14 million marks. Not too sure what the equivalent of that is today, but 14 million is quite a lot of money. The king endeavored to obtain money from America. I don't know if he got any money from America, but I know he tried. An aide-de-camp was dispatched to the Emperor of Brazil. Another was sent to the King of Sweden, and a third to the King of the Belgians. He also planned an application to the Sultan of Turkey, and to the Shah of Persia. He even gave secret orders that persons should be procured who would be willing to break into the banks of some of the capitals of Europe. Ludwig refused to slow down his spending and planned many more elaborate projects. When Ludwig's cabinet was like, hey man, you have to cool your roll and stop spending so much money, he considered dissolving his entire cabinet. Officials began to look for cause to depose Ludwig by constitutional means, at which they decided to declare that he was mentally ill and unable to rule. Ludwig's uncle, Prince Lutopold, was to step into the royal vacancy once Ludwig was deposed. Lutopold was more than willing to, but only on the condition that conspirators produced reliable proof that Ludwig was actually insane. Between January and March of 1886, the conspirators assembled a medical report on Ludwig's mental state. Most of the details in the report were compi compiled by Maximilian Count von Holmstein, who was disillusioned with Ludwig and actively sought his downfall. Holmstein used bribery and his high rank to extract a long list of complaints, accounts, and gossip about Ludwig from among the king's servants. The long list of his supposed bizarre behavior include his pathological shyness, his avoidance of state business, his complex and expensive flights of fancy, 
dining out of doors in cold winter and wearing heavy overcoats in summer, sloppy and childish table manners, dispatching servants on lengthy and expensive voyages to research architectural details in foreign lands, and abusive, violent threats, threats to his servants. The medical report was finalized by four psychiatrists that all agreed that Ludwig suffered from paranoia. None of these men had met with the king, with the exception of Dr. Bernard von Guden, who had met Ludwig once 12 years earlier. And Dr. Bernard von Guden was also the doctor that had a hand in Prince Otto's confinement. On the 10th of June in 1886, government officials arrived at Neuschwanstein to deliver the document of the deposition of the king formally and to place him in custody. A faithful servant warned him they were arriving and Ludwig ordered local police to protect him. The officials were attacked by a 47-year-old baroness, Spera von Trusis, out of loyalty to the king. She had attacked them with an umbrella. That same day, the government under Minister-President Johann von Lutz publicly proclaimed Leutopold as Prince Regent. The king's friends and allies urged him to flee or to show himself in Munich and thus regain the support of the people. Ludwig hesitated, instead issuing a statement allegedly drafted by his aide-de-camp, Count Alfred Durkheim, which was published by a Bamberg newspaper on the 11th of June. The king stated, the Prince Leutopold intends against my will to ascend to the regency of my land. My erstwhile ministry has, through false allegations regarding the state of my health, deceived my beloved people, and is preparing to commit acts of high treason. I call upon every loyal Bavarian to rally around my loyal supporters, to thwart the planned treason against the king and the fatherland. As the king dithered, his support waned. Peasants who rallied to his cause were dispersed, and the police who guarded the castle were replaced by a police detachment of 36 men who sealed off all entrances to the castle. The king attempted to escape, but was too late, and was seized by a second commission. Ludwig was transported to Berg Castle on the shores of Lake Starnberg. On the 13th of June, Dr. Guden and Ludwig went for a stroll on the ground of Berg Castle. They were accompanied by two attendees. Guden is reported as saying the king was of sound mind and pleasant to walk with. Around 6 p.m., Ludwig had requested the doctor accompany him again on a second walk, this time along the shore of Lake Starnberg. Guden was clearly confident in the king's behavior, or perhaps had something planned when he told his attendants to stay behind that him and the king would walk alone. What happened next has remained a mystery. The two men were last seen around 6.30 and were expected to return by 8. The staff searched high and low for the doctor and for Ludwig. A fisherman was summoned and upon rowing a short distance from the shore, the body of Dr. Gooden was the first found, in a half-sitting posture with his back below the surface. A few feet further out was the king's lifeless body, the head downwards and the arms bent forward. The king's watch had stopped at 6.54. Ludwig's death was officially ruled a suicide by drowning, but the official autopsy report indicated that no water was found in his lungs, and Ludwig was known to be a strong swimmer in his youth. 
The water was also just waist deep. Dr. Gooden's body showed blows to the head and neck and signs of strangulation. The tracks along the shore and in the bottom of the lake, which was examined, justify the following assumption. The king was walking on the right side and Gooden was on the left side until they reached the seat they had rested on before. The king must have thrown down his umbrella and run towards the lake, for his footsteps could be seen on the damp, moss-grown shore. Gooden had immediately rushed after him and seized him by the collar. His grasp might have, vi might have been very firm, for the nail of one of his fingers was kind of bent. Some historians believe that Ludwig was possibly murdered and that people had maybe followed both him and the doctor while they were on a walk. Even though Ludwig had been taken from his throne, uh, civil unrest may have been possible and could have erupted while he was still alive, and it was too much of a risk for the king to remain alive. Personally, I think he tried to escape. Gudin sounds like he got beat, so perhaps a fight broke out and Gudin was knocked unconscious, and perhaps Ludwig suffered a sort of stroke or a heart attack in the process. Both Ludwig and Otto despised Prussia and distrusted their uncle Ludopold, and Dr. Gudin supported Prussia's rise to dominance. Some contemporaries believe that Gudin's diagnosis of Otto and Ludwig were motivated by political considerations, and that more could and should have been done to help and treat Otto. Some contemporaries also believe that Bismarck did not want Ludwig or Otto to remain in power and decided to replace the brothers with their uncle. Ludopold. It is kind of a mixed opinions on how Ludwig behaved towards people who worked for him. I have seen a few sources that state that the servants' testimonies were paid and therefore not valid. And I could understand being skeptical about that, but just because they were paid doesn't mean they were lying, but it's difficult to know for sure. As the motivation behind deposing uh, the king had a lot of sneaky support. However, in one source I found based on a book, Ludwig II, King of Bavaria by Clara, I believe it's pronounced Clara Schutte, which was written about 20 years after the king's death, she claims that he was a whole dick to his servants. The king could break out into violent outbreaks of temper and several times laid his hands on his servants. Upon occasion, he struck them with his riding whip, and it is said that he once emptied his teapot over the back of one of his lackeys. Ludwig's personal footman, uh, by the name of Mayer, I believe, who managed to stay with him longer than any other servant, had an exterior which was extremely displeasing to him. His face alarmed him, and he ordered for long periods at a time that he should appear before him in a mask when waiting upon him at meals. Ludwig could not endure this man, and often said that he had a premonition that Mayer would bring him bad luck. Although Ludwig's servants suffered from his irritable temper, he was at other times a far too lenient master, heaping his subordinates with presents and marks of favor when he felt he had done them injustice, and when he found it necessary to send one away, always providing for their future. One of his personal attendants became seriously ill. Ludwig visited him and found his home without any of the conveniences of life. He asked him why he did not move to a better and more healthy place. The sick man answered that his means would not allow it. That same day, 
he sent him a present of a considerable sum and later raised his wages. Every year on Twelfth Night, he was in the habit of giving a servant's ball at his hunting lodge at, I think it's pronounced Blecken, Bleckenau? Hmm. Bleckenau, I'm going to say. It has been said that each of these festivities cost him 40,000 marks. Although the gifts he had distributed uh, did not consist of anything of greater value than eatables and beverages, all classes of his servants were guests. The whole day was spent in festivity. The king amused himself by looking on at their enjoyment, and it is said sometimes took part in their amusements. Ludwig was prone to thoughts of suicide, and he would ask his servants for cyanide of potassium, in which they replied they could not give it to him. He would also stand outside the balcony of Neuschwanstein that overhangs the, I think I'm going to say this incorrectly, the Polat Gorge, and he would state, when my barber comes, he may look for my head in the Polat. It is entirely possible and bloody likely that Ludwig could be capable of both being generous and being abusive. Whether he hit them or not, his erratic behavior would have no doubt kept everyone's anxiety on maximum overdrive. It seems that anyone who served him could take on multiple roles as punching bag, performer, and counselor. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the future of House uh, Wittelsbach. Um, so the future fate of House Wittelsbach would be a tragic one, and Bavaria would suffer for decades on. Prince Ruprecht was the last heir apparent of the Bavarian throne. His grandfather had been Lud uh, Ludwig's uncle Ludopold, who usurped the crown from Ludwig. Prince Ruprecht was openly opposed to the Nazi party, and made attempts to persuade others from following down uh, the Nazi path. He confessed to King George V of England in the summer of 1934 that Hitler was insane and that if given more power, he would destroy the world. Ruprecht and his family were forced into exile in 1939. He held out hope that the Bavarian monarchy would be reinstated in an effort to squash the Nazi regime. In May of 1943, he voiced his opinion that Germany would be completely defeated and spared from further Nazi rule. In October of 1944, um, Ruprecht's wife and children were captured, and they were sent to a concentration camp. In April of 1945, they were moved to Dachau concentration camp, where they were liberated by the United States Army. His family never recovered from captivity and vowed never to return to Germany after their ordeal. While Bavaria had approximately 54,000 Jewish people living in its borders at the turn of the 20th century, by 1933, um, it had 41,000 that lived in the state. By 1939, this number had shrunk to 16,000, and few of those survived Nazi rule. There has been a lot of discussion about Ludwig's mental state. Everything from paranoia to schizophrenia to bipolar disorder has been suggested. In my research, though, I found no mention of the fact that, this is my assumption, the fact that he might have been on the autism spectrum. Now, I'm not a professional, I definitely do not claim to be, but I do have family on the autism spectrum, and reading Ludwig's behavior, especially when he was a child, I did wonder if he was, in fact, autistic. 
And I've heard from people with autism that one should not refer to someone as being high or low functioning and that being diagnosed as autistic sometimes doesn't happen until someone reaches adulthood. And I don't know about this time, but I don't think white male doctors of Europe at the time knew what autism was. Uh, but I do think autistic people were commonly misdiagnosed as being insane. His mother had foreseen difficulties for Ludwig when she recorded her concern for her extremely introverted and creative son, who spent much time daydreaming. Ludwig thrived in areas that interested him, such as art, music, and literature, but remained firmly uninterested in subjects that he considered boring. In spite of Ludwig's erratic behavior, he was well-beloved by the people of Bavaria. The king enjoyed traveling in the Bavarian countryside and chatting with farmers and laborers he met along the way. He also delighted in rewarding those who were hospitable to him during his travels with lavish gifts. He is still remembered in Bavaria as, I'm going to try to say this, uh, Unserkini, our cherished king in the Bavarian dialect. I absolutely submerged myself in the topic of Ludwig II these past two weeks. I, I did not know what to expect in my research, and I went through a variety of emotions during this process. Uh, this is a very nerdy confession, uh, but I became excited to learn about a new monarch. And, um, you know, I, I will I will critique and drag monarchy any day of the week, and but I cannot deny that I am intrigued by so many of them and find myself absorbing as much information as I can. And the fact that Ludwig was a queer monarch, I think, you know, spoke to me, spoke to me greatly. And I feel like, you know, for the most part, like considering the time frame too, I feel like Ludwig was fairly openly queer. Like, I don't think he had the language for it. I don't think any of them necessarily did. I'm not too sure though. I'm not too familiar with uh, queer culture of that time and of that um, of that territory. But to me, he was fairly open. He had open relationships with men and people knew about them and these letters still exist. And um, whereas in the past, I feel like past monarchs who were gay kind of had to do a little bit of a better job at hiding it or else they were hella gonna get killed and Ludwig did die at a young age like he died I believe when he was 40 but um but yeah it, I feel like for the most part he was fairly open and he was allowed to indulge in his uh in his interests which were art and culture I also found myself really interested in the medieval fables uh, that Ludwig had cherished, and I'm going to be talking more about that in the uh, the castle episode that I will hopefully, fingers crossed, release um, no later than Saturday, which today it is officially Friday, so it is December the 18th, and hopefully I'll get that castle episode out on the 19th. So my two favorite pieces of information I learned of Ludwig were that he did not drink often, but when he did, he would put uh, violet petals in his wine, and sometimes he would also put rose petals in his wine. And I just, to me, that feels very medieval and also kind of reminiscent of antiquity. 
And I, I just love that idea. I think I don't drink that much either, but I think I'm going to try that when I do drink. And my second favorite is upon being asked why he did not fly the Bavarian flag at any of his palaces, he pointed to a peacock in the palace gardens and said, that's my flag. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Finding History. Please check me out on my Instagram at Finding History Podcast. As always, stay safe and keep learning.